0: welcome to zoe community church if you're new or visiting my name is jesse i'm one of the pastors here we're glad you could be here to join us uh hope you're having a good day uh today uh is not going to be maybe what you're thinking okay so we just finished up a long series so at Zoe, we preach through books of the Bible. That's kind of our bread and butter, and we finished a two-year, two-year-plus series through the books of First and Second Samuel. And uh, I'm kind of trying to build up the hype a little bit for what's next. Uh, so we're actually not going to start today. Okay, sorry to disappoint. You have to come back to church. Um, But we're going to start after Easter because next week is Palm Sunday and we're going to preach something related to that. Uh, and then the week after is Resurrection Sunday and we're going to probably preach on the resurrection. I don't know, James is preaching on it, so I said you could do whatever you want, but I'm guessing he's going to do the resurrection. So what we're going to do today um, is we're going to start something, we're going to start something um, that will be an ongoing kind of recurring sermon series that will kind of go on forever, but not every week. Okay. So every once in a while, we're going to have a sermon in this separate category. Um, and basically what it is, is we're going to talk about biblical counseling. Okay. So we're going to have these counseling sermons. Okay. So maybe, maybe you don't know this, um, but part of my education, right? Part of my training uh, before we planted this church, even while we started um, was in biblical counseling. I got a master's in it, um, though I definitely wouldn't say that I'm a master of it. Okay, I think degrees are kind of funny in that way. I don't know if you knew this, but when you go to seminary, you get a degree called Master of Divinity. You're a master of divine things. It feels like powerful and mystical and kind of a joke because you look around and it's just normal Christians who are trying to do ministry. Um, but I am a master of divinity. I'm a master of biblical counseling. Um, doesn't mean I'm an expert per se, but I did study it for a long time. And Lighthouse Zoe's always planting church, uh, the church that I was a part of for over 10 years was really into biblical counseling. So they had, uh, and have today a full counseling ministry. So they have over a dozen counselors, not just the pastors, but they have certified and trained counselors. They offer counseling training classes where now it's even beyond the scope of the church. So they've been able to witness the people in the community. They've been able to help people in the church with their issues, do marriage counseling, crisis counseling, but even beyond that, now they're offering these classes where they're actually training pastors and counselors of other churches in the area in how to do counseling. So it's a big deal at that church. It's kind of like the main thing that they do there. And what really made an impact on me at Lighthouse wasn't so much the formal counseling ministry. It's not like I went to counseling for 10 years per se, but it was actually kind of the principles that were sewed into the life of the church. Ideas that helped us to counsel ourselves and to counsel one another. Uh, they talked about, even from the pulpit on Sunday, what the Bible says about the issues in our lives. See, kind of the thing I learned at Lighthouse and what I learned through my degree in biblical counseling was, yes, the Bible talks a lot about eternal life, and that is super important. But the Bible also talks a lot about everyday life. And that's very important for all of us. Now, some of us here might know a lot of theology. Right? You might know a lot of scripture by heart. Maybe you've read a lot. You've studied a lot. And yet you feel like there's something missing. right? You know that Jesus is going to get you to heaven when you die. You can talk about the attributes of God. You can give me the historical context of certain passages. But what might be missing for you is how the Bible relates to what you're going through in your day to day. I have this issue. I'm struggling with sin. This trial has come upon me. And I'm not sure how to bridge the gap from this abstract knowledge that I have to what I'm going through. Minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day. And then on the flip side, you might have some people who know the Bible a lot. And you know that there are certain commands and certain things you're supposed to do. So you kind of do all the things. right? You know you're supposed to talk a certain way. You know you're supposed to walk a certain way. You try to apply these things to your life, but you're struggling right now because you don't know why exactly, or you don't know how, because it's not working. You know, I'm supposed to not struggle with the sin and yet I am struggling with it. I know I'm supposed to stop, but I just feel like I can't. How how does the Bible help me get to the bottom of these issues? So if you could turn with me to Ephesians chapter four, um, We preached through Ephesians before, so this is not any kind of hint or anything. Uh, I love the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 4. Our plan kind of moving forward, okay, is to try to do the same thing that I feel like Lighthouse did for me and, and for people who were there. We want to try to sow the truths of scripture that help us in this important middle ground between application and knowledge, Okay, between obedience on the one hand and kind of the ideas of theology on the other. Every once in a while, what we're going to try to do is uh, semi-regularly, I don't know exactly how much, maybe quarterly or something like this, we're going to have a counseling sermon where we will turn uh, to the Bible uh, and not just to, to the next passage in a book, but we'll actually try to synthesize kind of what the Bible says about certain issues, things that are very relevant for our lives, right? Anxiety overcoming certain struggles, grief, regrets, things like that, etc. Our hope is to sow the seeds of uh, the profound truth that scripture has regarding our issues because we all have issues um, and our hope is that we'll reap a culture of biblically informed, gospel-centered, every person ministry where you kind of are equipped, every single one of you, to think through the issues of your life and to help your friends and to help your neighbors and your brothers and sisters in Christ. Think through these issues biblically. So what do you think? Sound good? If it doesn't, we're still going to try to do it. And if it's really a flop, then uh, I'll just resign in disgrace. Ephesians chapter four, Ephesians four, we're going to be unpacking just one verse today. And if you know Ephesians, you know, it's so rich that you could probably do one verse at a time through the whole book, okay? But we're going to do 429. I'm going to read it. I'll pray. We'll get into it. Okay, so Ephesians 429. This is what Paul says, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. It says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? God, we know that your word speaks truth. You know that your word is living and active, that it can cut even into the very inner recesses of our hearts. God, we know that your word has power. And what we read in your word, God, is that our words have power too. That our words have power to build up or to corrupt So God, as we come to your word this afternoon, I pray, God, that you would inform us, that you would train us, that you would remind us of things that we need to be reminded of, that you would teach us the things that we need to know. I pray that you would help us to think about our words in a way that is informed by your word. And I pray, God, that we would be faithful stewards of the words that we have, that we might not corrupt, but that we might be able to build up. And counsel one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. God, it's a heavy thing. It's an exciting thing. I just pray, God, that you would use this time to help us move in the right direction. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever been in a situation where someone got personal with you? You know, where they just opened up, they shared a struggle. Maybe they uh, talked about a bad memory from the past. Maybe they asked you for advice. What did you say? You know, there's this video I've seen dozens of times. And I'll explain that in a second. But I've seen it a lot. It starts with a voice behind the camera asking the question, what do you want? What do you want? And the camera is focused on this guy sitting on a couch and he hears these words, what do you want? And he starts opening up. He says, well, I want a job that I don't hate, right? I want to know that what I do matters. I don't want, uh, I don't know what that thing is, but I want to do something. I feel like I want someone to tell me exactly what I should be thinking about. I, I want to stop feeling like if I take one more step, I'm just going to fall into a pit and, And then the voice interrupts him, the voice from behind the camera. And he says, no, I meant, what do you want to eat? And it, you know, the camera pans and it's not a therapist or a counselor or a psychologist or anyone asking this question. It's actually just his friend sitting on the other chair and he's asking about lunch. says, come on, man, we're going to order something. He's on his phone. So the guy on the couch, the guy who was opening up, he says, oh, okay. And he says, okay, I think I want this. And they just start talking and that's the commercial. And that's why I've seen it so much. For some reason, YouTube thinks the algorithm knows me and thinks that I need better help. Do you guys know what that is? It's an online therapy kind of service. And this is a commercial that shows up before like every single one of the YouTube videos I watch better help. YouTube, Google thinks I need to see this a lot. Anyway, okay, that's my own issue. But you understand the ad, right? You understand what's going on. The need is help. That's what they're showing. I need help. The answer is therapy. Okay, the need is help because we all have issues bubbling just beneath the surface. The answer is therapy by a professional, online or whoever. And there is a place for professional help, don't get me wrong, maybe not necessarily better help, and it's an ad. But there is a place for those who have given their lives to be professional helpers, people who use their training and their expertise to come alongside other people who use their experience to provide some sort of perspective. But that's not what we're going to be talking about today. That's not why I brought up this commercial that haunts my dreams. The reason why I brought this uh, brought this up, why I talk about this ad that I've seen so much isn't because we're going to talk about professional help or why you need to come to me as a pastor to get special counseling. Today, we're not even talking about professional anything. Today, we're going to kick off this semi-regular series by talking simply about opportunity. See, what always strikes me about this commercial, this ad, every time I see it, is that the friend asks the simple question and he's misunderstood he just says what do you want and the guy actually opens up he shares about his life he, he he shares about how hard things are for him how lost he feels how difficult work is and what this is is an opportunity it's an opportunity to say something And he did say something. He ignored what was shared completely. And he said, no, no, no. I want to hear about your lunch order. Now, okay, before I get into exegeting this commercial, it's just a commercial. Understand, though, that this happens all the time. Not just in YouTube ads. It happens in real life. We share and other people share with us. People open up. There are little cries for help here and there. People give prayer requests. There are conversations going on all around us. See, the truth is we are confronted every single day all around us in different forms with opportunities to say something to the things that we see going on in people's lives. And the question is, what do you say? There are several words translated as counsel, okay, in the Hebrew Old Testament and in the Greek New Testament. There's a Hebrew word, Esau, which basically means advice. There are a few Greek words. There's one, Sumbu, Leo, which also means basically giving advice or advising, and then they're advising. And then there's the Greek word, Nuthateo, translated either as counseling or admonishing, you know, warning someone, trying to urge someone toward the right path. The common thread through all these words in both languages is this idea of speaking something to help someone in a situation. Giving advice, advising, saying that this is what I think you should do. There can be a formal element to this, but at the most basic level, it's something we all do whenever we respond to someone who is going through something. So here's where we're going to start. Okay. Before we talk about specifically anxiety or something like that, before we try to start a counseling, uh, an official formal counseling ministry with certifications, stuff like that. I don't even know if we will do that, but before any of that, at a most basic level, at the most basic level, what we want to do is think about just how we respond to these opportunities. How do we steward them? What do we say? How do we speak? Because we do speak. So the title and thesis for the sermon is everyone is a counselor. You might not be paid for it. You might not be certified. You might not even give good counsel, but everyone is a counselor. You are a counselor. I am a counselor. This is where we're going to start. It's not, am I one or not? It's, it's, am I giving good counsel or not? As one of my old pastors from Lighthouse once said, a lot of the times, a lot of the time, the unspoken question of our heart and really the hearts of those all around us, even in church, isn't, can Jesus get us to heaven? Because a lot of people do believe that. But really the struggle for a lot of people is, can Jesus get us through the day? So we're going to try to kind of bolster that in our church a little bit. And the, the two are unrelated, don't get me wrong, but you know what I'm saying, right? How do we help When people around us are going through stuff, I mean, people, we struggle with depression, right? We struggle with sin. Maybe our sexual sin is. Hidden, but spiraling out of control. Uh, Maybe we have panic attacks. Maybe we have no motivation to get up and do anything, much less spiritual disciplines. We can't stop fighting with our spouse. We feel lost as parents. We're getting older and are burdened by so many regrets in our lives. Work is hard. In-law relationships feel impossible. Money is tight. This is just real life. This is every Sunday. And maybe you've tried to open up and it kind of went nowhere. Or maybe and this is where we're gonna focus on more. Okay, not how can I get help first, but how can I be a help. Maybe someone else confided in you. Maybe they just shared, you know, like, oh man, work was crazy this week. I think I might quit. Or maybe you saw them fighting right before church. I know people have seen people getting in arguments in the car and they just run away. Right? They don't know what to, to say or to think. And maybe, okay, maybe you did have an opportunity to, to speak into the situation. What did you say? What do you say? I'll pray for you. That's not bad. But did you say more? Did you say you should really talk to Pastor Jesse about this? To which I always say, you should really talk to Pastor Eric about this. Have you tried better help? You could try that one. Maybe you blurted out advice off the cuff. Maybe you changed the subject. Maybe you said nothing at all. This is where we're going to start. Everyone is a counselor. We're in Ephesians. And if you know Ephesians, it has six chapters, okay? Okay. And it's a very kind of neat book. The first three chapters basically focus on theology, on doctrine, on these high truths. It's not only that, but it's mostly that. Focusing on, okay, as a Christian, this is who you are in Christ. This is what's happened. This is how you've been changed. This is how you've been saved. And then the second half is all the implications of that, all the application. Okay, now that you are a Christian, if you have been saved by Christ, this is how you should live. Okay, this is kind of how things should be different for you. Now we're in chapter four, and if you do the math, that means we're in the second half. We're in the, the more application section. Let's get into it. Ephesians 4.29. I know it's one verse, but we're going to have three points. Okay? We're going to unpack this starting with the beginning. First, the choice. The choice, which is first of all about recognizing the responsibility that we have with our words. Okay? Look at the verse. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. But there's a strong contrast. Okay, Paul says, first of all, let no, let zero corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Now, the word for corrupting here refers to any sort of unwholesome language. And right away, we might jump to certain things that we feel are examples of this, right? No, no coarse jesting, no cussing, no gossiping, stuff like that. Rude talk, unkind words. And that is part of it. But it goes beyond that. The Greek word is used elsewhere in the New Testament for things like rotten fruit or spoiled fish, something like that. There's a stench to this term, okay, to this word. I mean, if you think about, you know, you reach into a bag of oranges or something and you're trying to pick out a good one. And what you have in there is a white and green moldy sphere. It's very gross. Any kind of speech that damages another person, that corrupts them, okay, that somehow, even if you think about it like this, right? If you eat something that's moldy, it poisons you. In fact, I was thinking about this guy I knew. I remember he used to work at Baskin-Robbins, you know, what I'm talking about 31 Flavors. That's what it is, right? Um, and he said he was working there, and of course, you don't want to waste any of the ingredients, but he opened up milk one time, and uh, he didn't want to waste it, but it smelled kind of off. So he, he didn't know what to do. Um, and honestly, I remember when he told me, I was like, even if you don't know what to do, don't do what you did. So he's like, does this smell bad? He's like asking his his co-workers and they're like, smells pretty bad. He's like, well, there's only one way to know for sure. So he poured it into a cup and he drank it. He drank the milk that he knew was bad. And he said that he wanted to vomit right there in the store. It was spoiled. It was so sour. And then he said, just to make sure he drank another sip. I was like, I don't know if I trust you, man, with anything in my life. Let no corrupting talk. I mean, this is what Paul's talking about. Don't drink the milk and don't give someone that milk. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Now, turn with me to James 3. Okay, James chapter 3. I want to build on this a little bit. James chapter 3. It's just a few books after this, after the book of Hebrews. James 3. The Bible talks so much about speech, and this is one of the most well-known Passages, James chapter 3. Look at verse 4. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. So he's saying that just like a rudder on a ship, the tongue has disproportionate relevance and power. And then keep reading. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. You could stop there. There are a lot of images he's using, but the main one he's using is fire. The tongue is like a small fire. And even a small fire can cause inordinate damage. What he's saying is words. Not only can they corrupt, as Paul says, they can also burn the whole place down. They can destroy. So it's not just, okay, no cussing. Don't be rude. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. That is part of it. Maybe, but it's more than that. See, the Bible urges us to weigh the importance of our words. Now, There are a lot of studies done. There have been a lot of studies, but studies done on speech, how often people talk, how many words we say a day, and there's no real consensus because people speak different languages, people are different ages. There's all these different variables. But basically, in studying for a little bit, what I saw was what most people agree on is that at least on average, a person speaks about 7,000 words a day. Many people speak much more, but that seems to be about at least how much an average person speaks. So think about it. Okay, you're like, well, I don't cuss. It's not about that. It's about you have 7,000 words, at least, that come out of your mouth every day. Do they corrupt or do they build up? Do they corrupt or do they build up? This is the choice. This is the first point. There's an either or. Okay, you can go back to Ephesians 4, Ephesians chapter 4. Go back there. Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. It's construction language. So the choice is simply, if you want to remember it this way, it's destruction, construction. Okay, destruction, construction. All talk, Paul says, should be constructive. Constructive. No talk should be destructive. It's not just when someone opens up to you and confides in you and asks for advice. It's whenever we talk. And when we live with people, we go to church with people, we work with people, uh, we have these opportunities to either build up or tear down. See, we need to grasp the magnitude of what Scripture is teaching. We're constantly confronted with opportunities to either help someone in the right direction or to push them in the wrong one. Let me make this practical. Let's consider the case of maybe a friend that you have or someone in church, a single person who wants to be married. Okay. This is the kind of person who hears a lot of advice from people, a lot of counsel. Now I'm not speaking of anyone in particular. I'm not trying to like single anyone out, no pun intended, but this is a case in church. That's very common. And a lot of bad advice is given. So, okay, think about it like this. It was Valentine's Day. You remember this a few weeks ago? Imagine a married couple in church. And this kind of stuff happens. Imagine a married couple in church goes to a single person and says, can you babysit my kids on February 14th so that we could go out on a date? Because I knew that you would be free. Okay? Okay. I didn't know who else to call, but I knew you weren't doing anything. It wasn't mean spirited maybe, but let me ask you, what do you think? Was that helpful? Is that helpful to say, did this encourage that person that they aren't alone in the body of Christ or did it actually maybe stir up some feelings of resentment or discontentment? I mean, what have you said before? Sometimes, uh, you know, you hear certain things, like someone's like, you know, I wish I was married. And then a married person chimes in and says, well, you know, marriage ain't all it's cracked up to be. You know, if you get married, you'll see marriage is that, you know, the old ball and chain, blah, blah, blah kind of stuff. Okay. My question is, is that helpful? Is that helpful? I mean, single person here, you know, it's not helpful. And while it might be true that marriage does have pros and cons, just like singleness, uh, it's not very honoring to your spouse to say that. It's not very grateful to God who has given you the gift of marriage. Or have you said something else? Maybe you said, I know for a fact that you will be married soon because you are such a catch. All right, here's the question. Is that even true? Okay. Not saying the catch part even that's subjective, but how do you know that they're going to be married soon? It might make them feel better in the moment. It might be encouraging in kind of a nice way, but is it ultimately encouraging them long term? Look, we've all given bad counsel before. I'm not trying to make you think back over your own personal low light real. I know I've given bad counsel in my life, but what I do want to point out is that opportunities are all around us all the time. Opportunities are everywhere. We should be appropriately wary then about the opportunities that we have to actually hurt people. And then on the flip side, we should be, I think, appropriately uh, excited about the opportunities that we have to actually help people. See, understand you are a counselor, and if you grow in your ability to be a good counselor... See, the Bible isn't just giving you a warning, it's also giving you an encouragement. If you grow in the ability to be good at counseling, if you harness the power of your words that you have for helping, imagine how much of a blessing that you could be when you encounter these situations. It's either or. You know, I heard a pastor share once about how he was at this conference and um, he was kind of wrestling with stuff. So he was pastor of a church. Things were going really well, um, but he had kind of felt this conviction that he should do something else. Um, his life was very comfortable, but he really had a heart for this other country. And he was wondering, you know, should I be a missionary? There's some opportunities that opened up and, and he felt like he could actually do it, that he could plan a church and start a new ministry in this other country. But... He also knew that it would be very uncomfortable. It would be very difficult. He was older now. Um, his kids, uh, well, what happened with them? He wasn't totally sure. He'd have to take a pay, all these different things. So he's at this pastor's conference, and then they said, at your table, share your prayer request with each other. So he's like, oh man, should I be open about it? So he's like, okay, I'm just going to go for it. So he says, okay, my prayer request is, I just need courage right now. And then he said, another pastor chimed in and said, I knew it. And he's like, dude, come on, man. Like, what are you saying? Are you saying like, I have a scared look on my face. He's kind of a taken aback at first. Um, but then, you know, they shared a little bit more and they were able to pray together. And then the pastor who said, I knew it, which kind of turned him off at first, but he said, you know, I know it's a huge decision, but this could be, I think your finest moment as a father, you could show your kids what's really important to you, not comfort, but a calling and a conviction And then he said, there is a lot to be afraid of. I understand, but you don't have to be afraid because God is going to be with you every step of the way. And this encouragement that God would be with him, it was straight from scripture, was enough to help him make the tough decision. And that church is still going to this day. See, the truth is you can help or you can hurt. I know some of us want to take back things we have said before. We wish we could have a mulligan, that we could do it over, that we could give better advice. And I preach to myself for sure. I know that there are many things I've said that, are, that have been destructive and not constructive. I'm going to speak 7,000 words just right now, probably more. There are a lot of things I wish that I could take back. But this is part of sanctification. This is why we're preaching this. And this also leads to the natural question, the second point. The second point, the circumstance. How do we grow in this? How do we grow in this? How do we even start to begin to discern the difference between words that help and words that hurt? Counsel that builds up versus counsel that destroys. The circumstance, which is about the need to grow in appropriate wisdom. Look at our text again. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear notice. Paul says as fits the occasion as fits the occasion. This requires wisdom. This requires actual discernment. See, yes, you want to speak the truth, but there's an appropriate time and place and way to do this. I remember we had a friend. Okay. I'm just going to give you this example uh, more an acquaintance, I would say, from Christian circles. He didn't go to the same church as as me or or a lot of us, I remember. But we would hang out and we would play basketball and do stuff like this. Um, and kind of just to be honest, okay, and forthright, he was kind of a guy who annoyed a lot of people. Okay, He would get under people's skin, um, not just on the basketball court, but just in life. He was kind of mean, okay? He kind of didn't know when he was taking jokes too far. Uh, so he turned a lot of people off. Um, anyway, everyone in kind of our group of people tolerated it. We didn't say anything. We're like, oh, well, that's just how he is. Got to be good Christians here. Um, but the resentment was building. It, It was starting to bubble up into a boil. And then one day, finally, one of our friends, he just lost it. Okay. And he just, he didn't get all mad. Okay. He wasn't yelling, but he just decided to be completely honest and real. And he said, listen, no one likes you. Okay, no one wants you here. We don't want to hang out with you. We don't want to play basketball with you. None of us here actually likes you, man. And that, unfortunately, was kind of the truth. But the call isn't just to speak the truth. In fact, if you look at Ephesians 4, just a few verses up, what does it say in verse 15? It says, rather speaking the truth in love... We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. The truth is all of us need to grow up in different ways. Our friend needed to grow up, but what do we do? We speak the truth in love. And my other friend who said those true words did not say it out of concern for this other guy. He didn't say it to build him up. He just said it because we were all so frustrated and he felt like someone needed to say it. It was true, but it didn't help it just pushed him away, I think, closed off any real opportunities to talk to him Talk to him about why, you know, that might be the case or why people might not enjoy his company or whatever. Maybe how he could try to change a little bit. Paul says that we should speak words that fit the occasion. It's got to fit the specific occasion, which means to the situation, to the circumstance, to the relationship, even to the person. Individually, Okay. Now let's explore this a little bit more. Turn with me to first Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter five. This is a little ahead of Ephesians. Also a letter by Paul. First Thessalonians chapter five. In the last chapter of this book, he says something that is relevant for our discussion about the circumstances of what we say. Look at verse 14. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Paul says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the fainthearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Now, you could just skim over that in a second, but if you stop and think about what he's saying, there's three different kinds of people he's talking about, and for each kind of person, he gives a different approach. For the idle, those who are lazy and undisciplined, The kind of person who could work, but ask you for help anyway. This person should be admonished. They should be warned even. It's kind of stricter language. You should tell them you're on a bad path. You're someone who is moving away from God. Where this is going to lead you isn't a good place. It's not good for you. The faint-hearted person, the person who is discouraged, should be encouraged. If someone is really struggling, you're not supposed to just come down all hard on them even if it is difficult to talk to them, what they need is encouragement. You could say, you can do it. Okay. I believe in not you, but I believe in the grace of God and God's ability to help you. The weak, those are those who lack the strength. They lack the capacity to accomplish what they must. They need your help. You can give them maybe some, Harsh words or soft words, but at the end of the day, what they need is help. They need you to help them figure out the situation. Maybe they, they need maybe even you to step in and aid them in some way. Okay. Think about this practically. Okay. This happens in church all the time. Someone will ask you for advice. They'll say, I'm struggling with a sin, but the person might be, they might be idle. Okay. They might be just really discouraged. They might just be weak. And if you're going to speak truth into their lives in a way that fits the occasion, you need to discern kind of which one of the three. And there's other, this is not exhaustive. There are other different things they might be struggling with. So if you make it practical, okay. If someone says I'm struggling with a sin and you know that they know the right thing to do. They're just making excuses. You've known them for a long time and they know kind of how to think through things biblically. Uh, they know that it's hurting other people. You might have to be a little stronger with them. Okay, you don't have to be like, no one likes you, get out of here, kind of strong. You speak the truth in love, but out of love, out of concern, you tell them, look, you're on a bad path. Like if you don't change in some way, you're going to ruin your whole life, honestly. Now, that person may be, They don't know what to do. They're a brand new Christian. They don't know how to overcome sin. They don't know how to deal with temptation. Maybe they're stuck in all these old relationships that, you know, they haven't been able to kind of disentangle themselves from. Maybe they just need your help and your guidance. See, fitting the occasion, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach to everybody. If someone's in sin, just call them out and move on. That's not what Paul is saying here. Sometimes you got to do that you need to discern who this person is and you need to discern yourself too. You know, sometimes for us, the reason why we're so harsh on people is because we're kind of lazy. You know, we're kind of idle. Maybe we need a little admonishment. And <laughs> someone asks us for help with sin, you're like, "Oh man, I don't have time for this. It's going to be somewhat like, I got to watch my shows or whatever it might be. we got to discern ourselves. we got to counsel ourselves, but you see what I'm saying? Okay. As fits the occasion going back, it's possible our friend had no idea he was so grating on others. I thought about that. Like we just assumed that he just knew that he was being annoying and kind of mean and difficult and he should, he should just know better. And if he wants people to like him, he's got to fix it. Right. But I don't know if anyone actually just told him in love, you know, caring about him for real, like, Hey man, I think that this is something that it's just hard for us. Okay. We just want to share it with you because we care about you because we love you. No one wants to be told no one likes you. That doesn't really help. So notice, Paul says at the end of this verse, Paul says, be patient with them all too. See, sometimes waiting is the best thing to do. James 119 says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Not every situation requires an immediate response and every situation requires patience from us. So part of fitting the occasion, right, part of understanding this is it's about them, understanding them. It's also about us and how we want to approach. And I know that this is difficult. There's a reason why we get frustrated. We say things in anger. There's a reason why it's difficult for us to want to help certain people or even for some of us to say hard things because we know it'll bring discomfort into our lives, that kind of conflict, Patience is hard. Waiting is hard. You know this. I know this. I'm not the most patient person in a lot of ways. You know, I was thinking about myself. And I've shared this before, I think. But when I was in seminary, I was talking to a guy that I hung out with a lot. And he was also going to seminary. And he would always basically just complain, like, all day about everything. All our homework, Greek and Hebrew, how busy he was, how tired he was. At first, I tried to be understanding. You know, I was like, well, he is pretty busy. And I'm busy too, you know, so I get it. But as time started going on, I was just like, this guy's got to stop complaining. And doesn't he know that the Israelites complain in the wilderness and that's why all that stuff happened to them? Like, it's time for me to like give him some plagues, right? Or something. So finally, and I, this is just in my mind. Well, I'm just like listening to him talk every day. We're like sitting in the library. We're going to class. He's complaining. We're walking in the parking lot. He's complaining. Then finally I lost my patience and it wasn't that long, actually. It was just like a week and I got really mad and I said, all you do is complain. I don't want to hear it. I'm busier than you. Very humble of me to say such a thing. Uh, and he was a little shocked. He was taken aback and to his credit, he was pretty humble about it. He said, you know, you're right. You know, everyone here is busy. Shouldn't have complained. I know you are busier than me. I don't even know if I was. That's just how I felt. He said, sorry about that. And I was convicted. I was convicted my sin of impatience actually had been more severe than his complaining in a lot of ways. It became immediately clear. If I had just patiently and gently encouraged him with his busyness, he probably would have stopped complaining to me all the time on his own. So I had to apologize. Okay. Look, when we fit our words to the occasion, as we should, like I said, it has to do with them and it has to do with us. Okay, it has to do with them and us. So it's not like, okay, when I said there are some words that build up and some words that tear down, that I'm going to give you 10 Bible verses to memorize, and it's kind of like you match them up. So if someone is struggling with this, just slap that verse on them. If someone's struggling with that, then just load that verse into your Bible gun and just shoot them with that Bible bullet, right? And all is done, right? All's taken care of. It's not like that, okay? It's about having the wisdom from scripture to know how to approach people in an appropriate way, to understand what people are like from the Bible, to understand how to give the appropriate kind of counsel to people from scripture. This takes wisdom, this takes maturity. We all need to grow in it. But Second Timothy 3 tells us that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, it doesn't just mean that we can use the word to minister to others, but it also means that the word ministers to us. It trains us. It equips us. It helps us to be more complete so that we can give better counsel when we do. We need to get into scripture. Scripture teaches us the truth that we need to grow in these areas. Now, this leads to the third and final point, the conduit. Okay. This is how we're supposed to think about it. This is the final image, the conduit. And when I say conduit, I mean conduits of grace. And I got that. I I get that from the preaching pastor at Lighthouse, uh, my old pastor, one of my old pastors before he planted Zoe. He used to always say this, okay? He used to always say, okay, don't be a cul-de-sac of grace, be a conduit of grace. Okay, don't be a cul-de-sac of grace, be a conduit of grace. Cul-de-sac, conduit. And you know that cul-de-sacs are good, right? A lot of people like living on cul-de-sacs. But the thing about cul-de-sacs is that they are dead ends, right? We have been given so much grace by God. That's the point. God has poured out the riches of his grace. He has lavished grace upon us. That's what Philippians, Ephesians talks about in the beginning of the, of the book. Now we could just take that and say, well, that's just all for me, but that's not the right way to think about it. Instead of being cul-de-sacs, we just receive and it ends with us. We should be conduits of grace. Conduits allow grace like a sort of spiritual electricity to flow through. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, Paul says, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. It's an interesting thing to say when we speak to build up, when we are wise and discerning with ourselves and with others, and we speak as fits the occasion, the hope is that we actually through our words, give people grace. We give people grace. And, and he doesn't say speak graciously, though that's part of it. Okay, we do speak kindly, that's part of it. He doesn't just say speak gracefully, right? Like in an elegant way, a beautiful way, in a poised and appropriate way, though that's part of it. He actually says that our words can give people grace. Our words can actually give people grace. Now, we're in the second half of Ephesians, chapter four. The second half, it builds on the first half. It's not in a vacuum. It's not separate. It's the application of what God has done in our lives. So if you turn back to chapter one of Ephesians, look at this. Grace is here right at the beginning. Ephesians one, chapter, uh, Ephesians one, verse two, Paul says, grace to you and peace from God In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. There's a lot in here. Obviously, I'm not going to explain everything, but you could see that grace is connected to all these different things. In verse four, sanctification. In verse six, blessing. In verse seven, forgiveness. In verse 10, reconciliation. And there's more in there. There's a lot. Okay. A lot in here. These are just some of the highlights. But the thing is, God gives us these things as a gift. He reconciles us to himself. He gives us forgiveness. He blesses us. And then in chapter two, it talks about our great salvation in Christ. In the first verse, it says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But then what does it, what does it say? And verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, we have been saved. And then it says in verse eight, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Grace is a gift that God gives. It can save us from our sins. It can make the dead alive. God's grace is what brings us to him. It reconciles us to God in heaven. Ephesians 1 through 3, it tells us the story of what God has done, the story of every Christian. See, God created everything with a word. We know this right from the beginning of Genesis. Before you and I were even born, he knew us, but he created a world before us, that was perfect, but then sin and death entered. And since then, we've been struggling both with sin and with suffering, kind of the consequences of living in a fallen world. And even more than that, we've been estranged from God. That's our reality. That's the bad news that the Bible kind of explains, that there is a problem that we have with God. But God sent a son into the world to redeem us. Jesus Christ lived the life you and I could never live a perfect one. He never sinned so that he could take the place of sinners. He died on a cross bearing the weight of our sin upon himself, bearing the wrath of God upon himself. And then on the third day after dying, he rose again and he offers new life in him. That's what Christians call the good news. We deserve nothing, but God has given us his son and with his son, all things Roman eight. That's what Christians call the gospel, the good news, the story of our salvation. And Ephesians makes it clear that it's all of grace. It's a gift. We don't deserve it. This is what Ephesians is teaching. That we are people born out of a theological reality. This good news, this righteousness applied to us, not because of works we have done, but because of what Jesus has done, a gift of grace. And this is what we can give to other people. Okay, not that we can save them from their sin, but we can point them to that truth. Not that we can reconcile them to God, but we can point them to that truth. And we can speak words of forgiveness. We can speak words of blessing. We can speak words of encouragement. We can sustain the weary with a word, as Isaiah 50, I believe, says. When we speak words that build up, that are appropriate to the occasion that we can give people grace. See, the truth is, you know, in church where we talk about this, you know, Christians, another name for them is saints. So kind of a misconception is that only the special Christians, only the great Christians are saints, and we kind of remember them, and we build statues of them and stuff. That's kind of a Catholic idea. But really in the New Testament, every Christian is a saint. Every Christian is set apart. Every Christian is holy because not of themselves and their works, but because of what Jesus has done. But even though we are saints, we're still sinners. We struggle with sin. Every single person in this room struggles with sin. We're still sufferers because every single person in this room still lives in this fallen world. So what has God done? You read the first three chapters of Ephesians, he sent his son, he blessed us, he reconciled us to himself, he made us alive, he gave us faith, he draws us near, he gives us the church, all these things, and then we get to chapter four, and what does it say? He gives us each other, and specifically, he gives us each other to speak words that build up. We need to be built up. God gives us each other and our words so that we can be built up. Listen to Romans 15, verse 14. Also, Paul, he says to the Roman church, he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. And the word for instructor in the Greek is also translated as counsel, that you are able to do it. Because you are filled with goodness. That is, God has changed you. Not that you're perfect, but that you are growing, that you have grown, that you're filled with knowledge, that you have learned what the word says. You know about God. You know these truths. If you have these things, then you are able, I am confident, you are able to counsel one another, to build one another up. So what's the big takeaway for today? You are a counselor. Every single person in this room As a counselor, you will have many opportunities even today and for the rest of your life to counsel with your kids, with your spouse, with randos on the street, with people you talk to on the phone, with people at work, with your neighbors. You're going to have a lot of opportunities to counsel. You're going to encounter people who have problems, who have issues, who ask for help. You are a counselor. So we need to weigh our words carefully because we are going to say something. Even saying nothing sometimes is saying something. Are we going to build up or are we going to destroy? Now, you might have some more questions. Okay, like, okay, well, I I don't know how to speak, you know, the right words into this situation or that situation. Don't worry. It's just a start. I just want you to think about what the Bible is saying, that we should be able to counsel one another to a certain extent and that we should be striving to be good counselors. But for now, okay, in terms of like the questions you might have, this is why we're going to do this ongoing series. Okay? Forever. That's what I told James. It's never going to end. Okay? It might not be every week, but it's never going to end. I don't know. I mean, I might die or something. And then they'll just say, forget it. We're not going to do this anymore. Um, but our plan is Lord willing to keep going. Because what we want to do is we want to equip you guys to counsel each other, to be better at that, and also to counsel yourselves. The scriptures are sufficient for this. I know it's hard to understand scripture in some places. It's hard to synthesize kind of what the whole Bible says about certain topics. So we're going to do these biblical counseling one-offs every once in a while. So, you know, it won't be about like fixing your issue in one sermon, but it will be equipping you guys to grow in these areas, what the Bible says about these areas. So we'll talk about idolatry. We'll talk about anxiety. We'll talk about communication. We'll talk about temptation, Lord willing. These are ideas, but kind of what we're thinking. At the same time, I would also suggest that you keep reading your Bible. I know it's almost April, so we've almost gone through quarter one. We started a Bible reading plan. If you fell off, I would say just jump back on or do a different Bible reading plan. That's fine. Um, but we just have to be in the Bible. Right? What did Paul say to the Romans? Full of goodness, filled with knowledge. You just got to start. It's not super easy, but you got to be in the scriptures. Right? You're like, I don't fully understand. You just got to take a bite, chew, and digest The next day, take a bite, chew, and digest. It's a process. You can't shortcut it. Um, but I would say keep doing that. So we'll do your Bible intake. We're going to try to equip you with certain things. And then third, I feel like we can kind of announce this now. What we're going to try to do this summer is we're going to try to start doing kind of an adult Sunday school. Okay. Kind of an equipping hour. We're going to keep it to an hour. That's our plan. And we're going to do different kind of classes as time goes on. So, I think first we'll do some theology, some kind of combo, I think, of historical and uh, systematic theology. Subject to change, but that's the plan right now. And we're going to try it out this summer, but our intention is to keep going. And what we want to do is talk about some of the more practical things too, like parenting or maybe marriage or maybe even just how to do biblical counseling, not so that you could become certified or anything, but so that you could give better counsel to others and even to your own heart. And we see in scripture so many times where we speak so we're supposed to speak truth to ourselves. So we want to help you with that. We want to help you to to be better ministers and, and also to really grow yourself. So anyway, look forward to that or don't. But I'm excited for what God can and will do um, through these different things. We'll close here. I saw another BetterHelp ad um, recently. And in this ad is very short. A girl says, sometimes I just feel worthless, pretty heavy. And then she says, my dad told me just smile more. And they pan over to her dad in the kitchen and he's just smiling this goofy smile and they ask, want better help? And of course, you know, you're supposed to say, yes, I think we all do. And don't get me wrong. Okay. Okay. With this message, I'm not saying that. You don't need maybe professional help. You might need it. There are times where maybe all of us need it. Uh, at least we need someone who's more experienced or trained. Uh, you might have something physically wrong with you. You might need medication or a doctor or something like that. Don't get me wrong. That's not what I'm saying, that it's just all about here. But what I am saying is don't neglect the opportunities that you have to speak good counsel to people. Maybe you won't be able to give the best help, but we can all give better help. Weigh your words carefully. The scripture will help you. Because this book is not just any old book. It's God's word. And maybe when you think about it, it's God's words. God has spoken these words and he spoke to help us so that we could speak better. And even give better help. Will you pray with me? God, I pray simply that you would help us to take this responsibility seriously, to try to be good stewards of our words, to be good counselors. And I pray, God, that at the very least, our church would grow in being healthy in this way, that we would seek to build one another up, that we would speak words that build up as fits the occasion, that we might give grace to each other and all the more as we see the day drawing near. God, we look to you. We pray for your help. In Jesus' name. Amen.